me go ahead and click this button, make sure it works this time. Yeah, I wanted some tea with honey to help my throat because I just got over a cold. So <laughs> I'm going through one right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm on antibiotics. It's the cold weather and the rains and everything. So yeah, my wife has to get on antibiotics now. She has a sinus infection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, here we go. Looks like we're active. All right, welcome to the Pulling the Threads podcast. And today I'm going to be doing an interview with uh, author David LeBlanc. Uh, former pastor, Calvary Chapel pastor, and Messianic leader, and Richard Cortez, who is a you know former Messianic pastor who converted to conservative Judaism and is now uh, in the process of converting to Orthodox Judaism. We're making that transition, uh, and as such, you know, a uh, little bit by myself about myself, I was also a former pastor, uh, leader in the Messianic movement. You had a messianic sitter and, you know, was a, a teacher and stuff like that. So we all have kind of a shared experience uh, with that as a background. And as a preamble to that, um, I'm going to do a preface to the first question. We're going to kind of go, uh, I'm going to do my preamble and then ask my question. And then I want you guys to take turns answering. Uh, we started to cover a little bit of this in the last interview I did with David LeBlanc. Uh, but I do want to get a little deeper and go into a little more detail about this stuff. Um, so we are going to be dealing with uh, Messianic Judaism, what they get wrong, Hebrew roots. Uh, and in general, this is also going to uh, speak to like how Christians misunderstand a lot of things as well. But uh, And then I do want us to kind of talk shop about the different Messianic movements, the Hebrew roots. Uh, and we'll kind of uh, guide us through it. So my first question here is how do messianic jews get the jewish jesus wrong there's a little preamble to it so jesus was culturally jewish according to you know the historical jesus scholarship what we get from the new testament uh he participated in judaism a lot of them like to claim that he criticized it um there are debates whether he was a pharisee or a zealot uh or an essene or something along those lines uh did he mean to start a new religion would the historical Jesus support Messianic Judaism as it is today? Christianity is a product of Catholicism and not Jewish. Messianics adhere to Christian belief and fail to understand what it means if there was a historical Jesus who was Jewish. As I have researched in the past, the original Jesus movement was totally Jewish, did not intend to create a new religion, and I don't believe they'd support the idea of more modern Messianic Judaism. The term itself is disingenuous in the first century when Messianics use it to validate their modern experience. Whereas there might have been Jews who were completely Jew Jewish and believed in a Messianic figure, they would not have believed in a dying and rising Savior God um, or the soteriology that comes through Pauline Christianity. Um, and this would have been antithetical to the Jesus movement or at least Judaism in the first century. Uh, and as I've uncovered in my blog post discussed here, Ebionites and Nazarenes and other, you know, we call Jewish Christians in the first century, like Christian isn't the best word, but followers of a historical Jesus. Um, they most likely observed the festivals, Shabbat kept kosher. There's indications they converted Gentiles through conversion, mikvah in a communal way. This no way invalidates invali Messianic Judaism, yet they try to use the historical claims to validate 
their branch of Christianity. Now, what did they get wrong? And the final part right here is let's, I want to avoid a discussion on what Pauline Christianity and the birth of Catholicism, but let's focus on the first century, what it meant to Judaism, not Christianity as later understood and how do Messianics get it wrong. And now Messianics are saying Christians will have, you know, problems with Christianity until they come to terms with their Jewish Messiah and its Hebrew roots. How is this all very convoluted and wrong? And I'd like you guys to take turns uh, kind of answering this. And I know I put a bunch in there. So kind of tackle what you can. If uh, Richard answers one thing, David, if you can cover another. Uh, Richard, if you want to go ahead and answer, how do they get it wrong uh, when they talk about the Jewishness of Jesus and Messianic Judaism in first century, as if it validates what they do. Right, right. Um, like you said, that's uh, it's a it's a question that it's packed and loaded with answers. Um, and really trying to tackle this, it's you have to really decipher it, you know, through pieces, like chopping a tree, essentially. Um, one of the things that we encounter that we, you know, that we understand in Judaism is that the concept of Mashiach uh, in Tanakh, both in Talmudic times and in Tanakh in Second Temple period, uh, was not foreign to the Jewish nation, number one. Um, for instance, the role of Mashiach and what he is supposed to be, what he is supposed to do, as we read through the Navims and we read through uh, the Torah as well, we find that this man is supposed to bring, you know, an eternal peace to the world. He's supposed to uh, judge the nations with righteousness, of course. Uh, his role, of course, is to uh, bring the knowledge of God to the whole entire world. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, the view for, for Mashiach, and by the way, when we find the term Mashiach in, in the Tanakh, we find that many, many kings were considered Mashiach, for instance. So it's very common. Barkova was a Mashiach, you know, he's yeah. the Mashiach. Again, Jesus being a Mashiach and second temple period, it's not sacrilege, just my point. Um, where where it gets really, uh, I believe, uh, confused, and I'll speak in terms that everybody in the audience can understand, where it gets really, really confused is when we start adding to the role of this, of this Mashiach. Uh, and the role of Mashiach in the Jewish world is never to uh, die for the sins of people, number one. Um, of course, doing miracles. I mean, not to say that he won't do miracles, but I mean, again, this is not necessarily the focus point. And when we think about Jesus today, what do we think? The the, the miracle worker. You know, it's just one of those things. You don't think Torah. You don't think, uh, you know, speaking the the righteousness of the nation. You think the the, the one who does healing and the one who died for my sins. Those are the two main you know themes that you can connect Jesus with today. So. What the Messianic movement is trying, always tried to do, is to be able to bring that back. So you mentioned the Ebonites. It's very interesting. Uh, much of the Ebonites today have died. I mean, there's a few of them out there that have online, you know, services and whatnot, but uh, you don't even hear much about them today. Um, and then it still begs the question, you know, I, I'm glad that the Ebonites are, you know, the few that are left, I'm glad that they are around, because it still begs the question. I actually had an Ebonite one with Kate Rock place. And um, I, I'm still kind of confused about how they believe that Jesus can take away your sins uh, or be an atonement for you when he, you know, they don't believe, obviously, in the virgin birth, at least a good, once that I met, they don't believe, they don't subscribe to that doctrine. Um, 
how can how can then he be an atonement for all mankind for the world and for eternity if he is not obviously divine if he's just another man like you and i um so you know these are the problems theological problems that rise up with the Edenites uh, and trying to connect you know and bringing that restoration back to Mashiach so in, in I mean short... that, that's that's interesting that you bring that up the mm -hmm. historically the earliest Edenites did not believe Jesus was a savior uh, right. That developed later, and right. early Ebionites rejected Paul and Pauline Christianity. Right. Uh, so the the later developed because there was a splinter group between the two, uh, where they did, you know, the ones that followed, you know, the Nazarenes and Pauline Christianity did eventually adapt that. But originally, the earliest Ebionites didn't believe that Jesus was a savior. So I just want to. Uh, say contextually they would be reinventing the past and adding their own flavor to it now right today. Uh, but anyways i didn't want to interrupt you too much but you can keep going with your point i just wanted to kind of make no 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 it's a it's a good point you know and again that's yeah and i'm I'm glad you brought that up you know i'm i'm, I'm speaking in terms of modern day Edenites today um it is true that in the second temple period they didn't subscribe to this kind of theology um and again jesus would have been just another mashiach again um and and that's that who yes. you know ultimately didn't fulfill anything essentially uh what tanakh says any more than bat fulfill anything that tanakh said you know needed to be fulfilled any other mashiach for that matter well he may have done a little better bar Koka actually started a revolt so he yeah. was on the path he yeah, did a little better Rome. he got further right uh, right rabbi akiva got behind him yeah. right Right, right, yeah. right. So, right. I mean, he got a little further than Jesus. So, I mean, you got to give the man credit, even though right. he failed, but, you know. Right. So, you know, Jesus in the, historic, in the historical context, in my opinion, is it really just been another, you know, possibly another uh, uh, rabbi, you know, who this followers proclaimed to be Mashiach, and he got too loud, and he got killed by Rome, which, again, it would have been another day in Rome, is my point. Uh, this was, this is very common. Jews being crucified. Uh, doing Second Temple period for uh, for the zealousness uh, in, in in the religious zeal, it's not something that is unheard of. We we see this the writings of Josephus. We see this in in, in the Talmud. You know, many historical references for this. So I believe Jesus probably was just another one. Why is he you know stand out from all of them? He probably had a good following. Um, and and here's the here's the here's the caveat with this too. And and here's where it's hard to decipher. So you mentioned earlier that, well, you know, more than likely he was a Torah observant rabbi who, if he would have looked into Messianic Judaism today, he'd probably be a Paul, which, you know, more than likely I agree with you in that. Um, the problem is deciphering now what you actually read in the Christian Bible. What I mean, for instance, in one hand, he is saying the, the, the teachers and the Pharisees, you know, they sit in the seat of Moses, whatever they tell you to do, that and do, right? Uh, but then, on the other hand, he's literally violating Torah because he's literally cursing the leaders and calling them sons of devils publicly, which, again, the Torah condemns, by the way. And so, so does the Talmud. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. know, it's, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's like when it, we just actually went through this Parsham Mishpatim, and that's one of the that's one of the Mishpat. I mean, that's a positive commandment. You actually a negative commandment. You shall not do this. Yeah. Honor the honor the leaders of the community. Yeah. Absolutely. You yeah. know, so we, we find that, you know, me and many people say, well, he didn't break the Torah. Well, I'm sorry, he did break the Torah, right? Right then and there it shows that he did. Uh, and I can point out several places where he broke Torah. Um, but again, the question is, how do we decipher 
to the Christian Bible now? Like, how do you pick and choose which one is legitimate and which one is not? Because you got an opinion of people that say, well, he was Torah observant. Well, there's support for that in the, in the Christian Bible, I agree. But there's also support for that in the Christian Bible that he wasn't. So the question, my question is, then how do you decipher? How do you pick and choose which Jesus you want to you wanna subscribe to? The, the Torah obedient one or the one that is not Torah obedient? And that's really where it becomes, I believe, where it gets a little, uh, uh, it can get a little gray area at this point. It's because, again, we don't have anything, any accounts, you know, like a lot of the stuff that he did, Josephus didn't write about it. We don't find it really in the historical accounts. So no. not much. What's found about him in the Talmud, it's, it's, it's in debate at this point, whether it was him, because, again, now we're talking about a name that was very common in the second century. That's another thing. Yeah. So there is a Jesus that is talked about in the Talmud, which, by the way, it's not in very good favor. For more than one. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, again, th this is what the problem is today. How do we subscribe? How do we how do we decipher? I mean, we got we got so many, so many passages in the Christian Bible where we see that he literally violates Torah and adheres to that. And, you know, and, and then we got other passages where it appears that he's not. I mean, so there might have been an early historical Jesus that didn't, and then Roman Catholicism came in, and maybe they added, or related redactors added the uh, the critique of the Pharisees. Who knows? What's the original core message? What was added later? You know, um, uh, what do you have to say, uh, David, about what's your answer to my bloviated question there? <laughs> bloviated. Uh, really enjoyed uh, what Richard had to say. I concur 100% with everything he said. Um, I think riffing a bit on some of his ideas there, I think uh, it's a great starting point that he brought us on with because just speaking, for instance, in Jewish tradition, uh, as you alluded to, Richard, uh, there's no passages in the Talmud which specifically identify the jesus of christian tradition right. what we have is we have if you if you follow the actual literal stories that you can find in the talmud um it looks like a guy who existed a hundred years before the jesus story right um and we have of course uh the toldoth jeshu which gives um a much different account of Jesus's origins than what we find in Christian tradition as well. In fact, I've always found it interesting uh, that you have that passage in the Gospels, which insinuates and incriminates the Jewish leaders for making up a, a story about his followers stealing the body. The body, right? They they blame the Jewish leaders of of making up this mythology to hide the identity of of the Mashiach, when in fact. Um, that actually incriminates the Christian writers uh, in retrospect, because uh, that's actually a lot more plausible than what the Christian Bible says happened. No. Uh, the Christian Bible would expect us to believe in these fantastic miracles and ascensions to heaven and all these other elements, which I would add uh, all share commonality with pagan myths. Um, they don't really share any commonality with Jewish tradition. And uh, another thing that was going through my mind as uh, Richard was speaking um, because both of you were talking, well, I guess, uh, uh, Jeremiah, you brought up the idea of the development of Christianity. Uh, one of the things that always ended up bothering me ultimately with the messianic perspective on Jesus is there always, whether it's the Hebrew roots groups or whether it's the, uh, messianic Jewish groups of various strains, 
they're always trying to uh, engage people in this effort to get back to the original Christianity, right? It's this this impetus of Jesus was a Jew, and this is how he would have believed, and this is how he would have lived. And yet, um, they don't apply the same principles when it comes to the religious traditions in question. They're inconsistent in their arguments. So we, they expect us to go back to an earlier time before the establishment of rabbinic Judaism and the establishment of, uh, you know, the, the, the oral tradition as found in the Talmud. They expect us to ignore all that and get back to this undocumented um unknown jesus that they can really literally which is what everybody does they form jesus in the image that they want because they don't have any documentation of what he really was or who he really was all they have is what they have which is their scriptures uh and the oral traditions of the christian church and so that it becomes a zero-sum argument to try to identify a historical jewish jesus which is why i've always been irritated with the historicity movement because they they miss the point of the argument. So, for instance, to illustrate my point, uh, any Jew that learns Judaism knows the 13 principles of Rambam. Okay. It's core to Judaism. Now, when were the 13 principles written down? Well, they weren't written down until centuries after the Talmud was completed. And yet they are accepted as part of a of a orthodox belief system within Judaism. It's not law per se, Rambam's 13 principles, but yet functionally in tradition it kind of is uh and so when you have this development over a period of time that has to be recognized because today judaism is not what it was in 50 ad it's 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 developed and it has uh it has a tradition which must be acknowledged and so you can't by by uh, conversely you can't then erase christian tradition and how it's developed and ignore those doctrines and those teachings in your evaluation of Jesus. If we're going to evaluate Jesus from a religious perspective as a point of belief, we have to include what the normative Christian church says about him, and then we have to evaluate those claims on those merits. We can't just dismiss all that and say, well, that's not relevant to us because we're following the original Jesus. Really? Well, where is this original Jesus? Can you show him to me in history? As Richard already said, uh, Josephus never talks about him at all. In fact, not just Josephus, everybody focuses on Josephus, but there are many other uh, Roman and Greek, Greek historians of that period and Jewish historians who wrote extensively during that time period, none of them talk about Jesus, not one. And we know, for instance, that the, the, the testimonium Flavianum in, in Josephus is so widely recognized for so many centuries as an obvious forgery that no credible scholars even uh, that believe in Christianity would even cite it as evidence, because it isn't evidence. So there is no physical evidence of Jesus uh, of the Christian tradition. By converse, We know the fathers of Judaism because they were carefully documented. We have the records. We have it in the Talmud. We have it uh, in in a lot of the other writings that are are extant from that period. We we have it in a lot of the the letters uh, that that end up becoming part of the Talmud. Uh, So we have the, you know, we have the early Mishnaic period where you have uh, you have a character, for instance, like Ben Zakkai, who who had extensive interaction with uh, with with Vespasian, with with even with Josephus, um, yet there's no mention whatsoever 
uh, of this Jesus character, unless you go into the passages, which again, I already mentioned that they, they would indicate an Egyptian magician that, that, you know, uh, that married or, or was stoned to death about a hundred BC, which you can't use that as evidence either. Uh, the same, you know, we're not going to get into Paul, but just as a point of reference, you can't discuss Christianity today of any denomination without wrestling with the teachings of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul claims to have an insider's view of the Sanhedrin. Uh, I've heard Messianic leaders claim that Paul was in line to be the Nasi, that he was being trained, uh, which is so incredulous. If this gentleman came from Tarsus, there was no Jewish settlement in Tarsus, but there was a Roman legion there. Uh, there's no Jewish settlement there in that time period so who is this paul character and how come we don't ever hear about him until the late uh, middle second century he doesn't exist even in early church historians paul is unknown until after the turn of the century so so everything that christianity bases itself on is is uh is speculation and none of it can be verified um i, I lastly would like to emphasize re-emphasize the point that richard made that uh, even if we want to uh uh contend that there was a a jesus a mashiach type figure uh in that time period um that doesn't really establish anything so even if even if the christian church could prove that there was a jesus who lived in the first century as the new testament claims we still cannot take those claims at face value even in the torah itself apart from the oral tradition if you just simply look at deuteronomy 13 you realize that there are already injunctions within the torah to vet any potential prophet or leader that arises in the midst and if they fail yeah. to produce the results that they claim they are to be summarily dismissed they're not to be taken seriously so i mean that i think richard gave us a fantastic starting point for how to evaluate this issue. Thank yeah. you, David. And I love you. I love you. I, what you just said was amazing. I mean, thank you for all that <laughs> information. It is thank so you. True. Absolutely true. That's that's the problem that we are facing today. Yeah. And this is where it becomes, I, I think, in my opinion, also, I'd like to add real quickly, this really, it, it sets a platform for people, I believe, to have a voice. When you don't have clarity, and you mentioned that in Judaism, we have this tradition, which, by the way, proves in itself to be true. As a matter of fact, and the, the, the Tanakh even establishes that, you know, the, the, your descendants will not, essentially, they will not stand. You know, if they go into idolatry, they will lose their identity and will not stand. If Jesus was so true and Christianity is so true, why is it that we don't even have descendants today? Why there's no record of anything? Right. So what we have is, what we have today is just a lot of confusion. So again, going back to the platform, it gives a platform for all these leaders to rise up today and be able to uh, advance, essentially, the doctrine that they're trying to uh, erect in these days. Why? Because there's no proof of it. This is, yeah. this is again, this is beautiful for rebels, by the way. And, you know, this, the, uh, as you probably know, being a Messianic leader, uh, we don't we don't lack, you know, we didn't lack, I wouldn't say we do in the past, we didn't lack any rebels, unfortunately. Uh, and that's what they do. They just try to take over the congregations, and 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 this is what we find in today. That's why the whole movement is so confusing. I don't know if you noticed. It's just, and we like you said, we're not even talking about Paul here yet. Yeah. Um, you know, we haven't even added Paul to the equation. It just, it, it's a mass confusion where again it gives room for anybody. And you know, we find this in the Book of Judges. 
how does the book of Judges and the very last verse of the book of Judges, Shafim, says that there was no king in Israel in those days. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And I really believe that this is what we're witnessing today within the sphere of Messianic Judaism and even uh, even some of the hmm. Christians as well. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. So Jesus, if he existed, there's not a lot of historical records. Maybe he was a marginal Jew because apparently he wasn't discussed in any verifiable, clear way. So, and he also comes from an unfalsifiable time. I can't even say that word right now. An unfalsifiable time that there is no proof of. So you can't disprove it. So you make up a claim. It could be anything and there's no way to disprove it. You know, I mentioned this in a podcast I did last week that at the destruction of the temple in 70, they would have destroyed, you know, buildings and records. And at the Bar Kokhba revolt, they would have destroyed records. That is why we have a record of what happens after. And that's where the Talmud and Christianity come from. You know, the reason we don't have things before 130 and before 70 is because they were destroyed on purpose. Um, now, transitioning, you know, kind of to the final question of my question was messianic jews are saying that christians will have they have christianity wrong as long as they reject their jewish messiah that's very convoluted right i mean the the if there was a jewish jesus he doesn't validate messianic judaism um or the later re invented roman catholicism um, now, Judaism's never been about a rabbi. Now, I want to go back to a point. You mentioned Rambam's 13 principles. Now, these can be ascertained in general from a plain understanding from Torah, and this is why they're not really rejected in the same sense where Paul's teachings are completely rejected by Judaism because they're not ascertained through a plain understanding of Torah. And so before we move to the next points, I kind of want to talk about this. What can be ascertained through a plain understanding of Torah should be the foundation of what a Messiah is or what a faith that is rooted in the Torah and Judaism is. And uh, David, why don't you respond first to this one? Uh, yeah, sure. My, my, my initial thoughts on that have always been the same. Uh, you know, and this, I'll just give the perspective I, I gained as I left Christianity and left Messianic faith. There's certain literary aspects to the New Testament that are highly suspicious at the very least. For instance, you mentioned, you know, what can we ascertain from Torah about Mashiach? Well, there's very little. <laughs> from the actual Torah, you know, we have the obvious verse when, um, you know, when Jacob is blessing his sons and you have the whole, you know, the the, the Christians love to quote the, the verse about the, uh, the rod of, you know, ruling will never leave Judah and all that. Um, but... But those, you know, as we don't, we're not into that point right now. I don't know if you're going to go there where, you know, we have all these scriptures that get misapplied and misconstrued by, by Christian belief. But essentially what I always found fascinating is like, for instance, you take the gospel of Matthew and it's very clear if you look at it with open eyes that they are trying to portray this Jesus character as another Moses. So, so the life of Moses is literally paralleled in almost every respect in the gospel of matthew uh from the birth narrative to you know the whole thing you know running off to egypt you know uh and then the whole even the ascension of jesus is is cryptically similar to the ascension of moshe who never truly is seen to die he just disappears one day and and there's a tradition that he was taken up uh or whatever uh but th so that's a very a very clear attempt 
to basically appropriate the Jewish story for this new story that they're writing. Yeah. Um, and it's very convenient. It's almost like if I wanted to declare myself a, a, an expert marksman and I went out and shot an arrow into a tree. And then after I shot the arrow into the tree, I painted target around the arrow to where it was a bullseye. I look like a genius shot. And I, I've always had to laugh when people say, well, Jesus fulfills all these prophecies. Well, if you, if you, if you create an environment literally with your literature where you where you create that impression by selecting certain passages and then misapplying them for your purposes, yeah, it sure sure so does look like Jesus fulfilled a whole lot of things. But uh, again, it it goes back to um, the point that Richard was making earlier, which I think can't be emphasized enough. Uh, and and you know, Jeremiah, we we talked about this uh, somewhat on the last interview that uh, there's no form of authentic Judaism that is completely centered on a single single individual. Yeah. It just doesn't exist. There, there's no, there's no, I mean, I suppose you could make the argument that Chabad is sort of like that in some sort of, ways, but, they still, uh, they but still you know, without getting into that, and, yeah. you know, just the whole, the whole, um, the Hasidic, uh, you know, veneration of the Rebbe and all that, but um, it's still different. <laughs> Even in that context, it's still not the same uh, because, uh, you know, and this, again, this goes back to my earlier point, and I don't know if I'm, I'm varying off your question here, but forgive me if I am, but, you know, it's easy to say, so I, I know certain messianics and I, I know Richard probably does too, and, and perhaps we were both one of them, who, who stridently make arguments that, well, if we strip away later Christian doctrines, such as the virgin birth, such as the divinity of Jesus and the Trinity, such as uh, certain problematic things that would be uh, very problematic for anyone that's monotheistic, if you strip all those away and you just proclaim that, well, he was a man, he was a prophet, and he was our Mashiach as a man, well, okay, so even if we embrace that, that, um, that straw man argument, it doesn't hold up on its own, as Richard already stated. But you, but the problem I have is you can't strip that away because the whole argument of Jesus as a savior of the world is based upon those presumptive principles. Yeah. So if you're going to take away the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus, you've just stripped Christianity of any power or message that it has to the world. What are we doing here? Yeah. There's no point to that. It's like, no, like, like I always liked what Robert Price said. Like people see the story of Clark Kent and Superman, but if you take Superman's power away from Clark Kent, who the heck's interested in Clark Kent? Right. Nobody wants Clark Kent. They want Superman. So we can't have a messianic Christianity that is divorced from Christian core doctrines of salvation. You're, and that's why ultimately messianic Christianity, I don't care what arguments that these leaders want to make, and I know because I used to make them, uh, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have Jesus, your savior, and have Judaism. They're not compatible to each other. They're totally different religious systems. Judaism is not a salvation religion. It's a community. It's a communal faith. Uh, so, I mean, and I, I don't think many messianics really understand that. I think they're so attached emotionally to their personal image of who Jesus is that they that they strive to try to justify uh, i've seen people online that irritate me i can't even engage with them and they'll pick and choose and and just comb the jewish sources 
the uh to try to find uh one of the popular ones is they like to quote Rebbe Nachman of Breslov because he's always talking about Mashiach, right? So uh, I've even had I had a guy with a straight face say, I think Rebbe Nachman was a secret Jesus follower. I mean, he would roll in his grave if he would hear that. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. There's nothing that was opposite. He Nachman was trying to strengthen Jewish belief amidst persecution he had nothing to do with jesus whatsoever so the there's so many uh false narratives that get promoted and i and to me it's always rooted in this um this fantastical and uh fantasy really emotional relationship they have with this god man if jesus was really a, a, a historical person with a real history there wouldn't be this level of crazed devotion because we have great rabbis that we admire and and revere from history but we see them as great men we don't see them as supernatural deities that came to earth you know yeah. and then ascended to heaven that's not part of the jewish tradition no it's not uh yeah richard did you want to go now yeah sure i mean david did a an amazing amazing fantastic job really um and and to be honest with you, just to kind of pick where he left, you're right. Uh, Judaism and Christianity are on the same plane level. Uh, we're not. You know, Judaism can be true, Christianity false, right? Christianity cannot be true, Judaism false. You know, we're not in the same plane level here. And, I mean, if you were to take a person right now, for instance, and you throw them in the middle of nowhere, with a Tanakh, okay, They'll probably read through it and they'll probably can, they probably can come up with the idea that possibly there's some kind of ruler that's going to come and redeem them. But in reality, you need over Torah for a lot of this. This is my whole point. You know what I mean? Mashiach, basically Mashiach is a halakhic issue. You know what I mean? Because again, if you just base it on what the Tanakh says, again, it's very few passages in Tanakh that talk about this future redeemer. Uh, and again, if you, if we don't have halakhic issues, then like, what are we looking at? Then anybody can come up with the idea of Mashiach. So, you know, it's very interesting, again, that Christianity, you know, again, Judaism at one point had it right. You know, according, you know, if we look back in history, at some point, the rabbis had it right. Because again, this is before the birth of Christianity. The rabbis had everything right. But now, all of a sudden, something changed. You know, now... You know, it, 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 everything that we have learned from Judaism, we just kind of tear down the tree and we just start growing our own little tree. And now, no, he's not coming one time. He's coming two times. I mean, you know, it's it's all these things now get added into where, you know, like, guys, you know, where did we get this from to begin with? You know, we, we have to go back to tonight. This is my whole point. So this is what's so interesting. This is why I believe, um, again, just elaborating everything David said, it, it, it's it's been we're not in the same playing field. And this is the lie, and, and that's the essence, the deceitfulness, is that we are to believe today that Judaism and Christianity really are so close together. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only thing that separates us is the fact that we believe in, in, in Christians believe in Yeshu, you know what I mean, and Jews don't. But other than that, it's all the same, and that cannot be further from the truth. Right. That's a very good point. If I might add, if I could interject um just a, a thought that was on my mind uh, related to what Richard just said. He was talking about we have to go back to Tanakh. So the whole principle of Peshat is you start, you have to start there Absolutely. before you go to the esoteric. And one of the things that I finally found really unnerving about the messianic movement, uh, and this isn't this isn't true of Hebrew roots because they don't deal so much with this, but it's really true of a lot of the more uh, intellectually robust elements of the messianic movement, is they run right 
to the sod level. They go right to the sod level yeah. and they attribute everything mystical that this is an allusion to Jesus. This is an allusion to our faith. And if you know anything about Jewish learning in yeshiva, you realize that that is an amateur's approach to the tradition. That's not what you do. The mystical isn't even taught until you've mastered the basic. You have to learn, you learn Torah, you learn Talmud, and you and then in the course of Talmud study, if you have a skilled rabbi teaching you, he will expose you to various uh, mystical type arguments that are prevalent, uh, but it'll always be in the proper context of, of your understanding. So there's philosophy and then there's basic truth. And so uh, as Richard said, I think that's an outstanding point that you ha that whenever these things get debatable, uh, you have to stop leading with the mystical because that's the only real argument that the messianics have is if they mm -hmm. can if they can attach their Jesus mm -hmm. to the mystical religious tradition of Judaism, well now they now they've kind of gone in through a back yeah. door. Yeah, and, and it's and you know you know what we we know about somebody who comes in through the back door of the house without knocking is their intentions are not pure. And I think I'm not saying that people are are not pure in their intentions, but they're misguided in terms of they're they're driven by their emotional attachment to this this idea, and they'd be much better served. I found always they'd be much better served like put your Jesus aside and all your ideas about him and start learning Judaism the way Judaism is truly taught and lived. And I've found that I've never experienced someone who does that. And, and this is another important point uh, I wanted to add, since it's on my mind, is that most of these people are not involved in any way in authentic Jewish community. They're on their own with their little groups, and they have their own little think tanks, and they, and they congratulate each other with all their insights. But, but they wouldn't be able to function in an actual authentic Jewish space because none of that would work there. No. So I think that everyone that I know, including myself, that actually took the honest attempt to try to understand Judaism from its own arguments, not from the perspective of uh, how do I fit Jesus into this, end up leaving Christianity and attaching themselves to Judaism. Because it's very obvious once you do that, uh, that, well, I was playing a game over here. This is this is a joke. You know, it's not really real. And many, I want to, if I might add also, David, in many sense, what they're doing is exactly what they're doing with Tanakh. You know, I mean, hmm. they're, they're ripping Tanakhs completely out of context. Yeah. Uh, and when they do, they do the same thing when they go into the into the Talmud or into any of these missionaric writings. Uh, they go in there with a filter ready. And um, and unfortunately, this they, exactly what they're doing with the Tanakh is what they're doing with the Talmud. Um, one of the things that they will never share with you is that, you know, an esoteric concept can never override a Peshat level. Right. You know, this is fundamental in Judaism. Uh, never ever. I mean, this is, you know, God forbid, we can never do that. So the concept is, of course, they're quoting a passage from the Tamil, from the Gemara specifically. And, um, you know, again, just like they do with the with the Tanakh, you know, oh, there it is, you see. But they don't read the before and the after. They don't read the context of right up to that. And this is completely, and this is master mindful. This is what they do. Um, and uh, unfortunately, you know, it's interesting that they go to the Tamil, they go to the Gemara. And most of these most of these groups are the first ones to tell you that the Jews are just filled with traditions. Uh, Talmud is not valid. Gemara is not valid. But yet that's where they go to support their. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I just think that it's just you have to but laugh. You know, it's like, yeah. why do you go there? I mean, if Jesus is so obvious in the Tanakh, why do you need to go to Gemara? Like that would be the last place that I would go. Yeah. Can, can I can I jump in and say something there? <laughs> 
Because that's such a good point. You, you know, like you're so accurate with that. It is so, so true that that's exactly what they do. And yeah. if you study Talmud, you understand. So the Gemara is a dialectic discussion on the Mishnah. So yeah. you have to start with the Mishnah. So you have a Mishnah right. and you'll have passages in the Talmud where you'll have a Mishnah and the Gemara will go on for, for 20 pages before you have another Mishnah. And so if you don't understand the context, as Richard just said, of what this discussion in the Talmud is, and you just cherry pick some some little paragraph, um, you have no clue what the rabbis were talking about. You're just yeah. appropriating it for your own use. Yeah. Oh, it's horrible. It's really yeah. horrible. Yeah. So, yeah, these are all really great points. I want to hit three points next. Um, one, how they get the festivals wrong. Two, how they get the tabernacle wrong, and then how they get the Tanakh wrong. Uh, my preamble to the first question is an another wordy one, but how do Messianics get the festivals wrong? How do, how do they get the Passover lamb and Yom Kippur sacrifices wrong? Now, according to Christians, Jesus fulfills the Passover and the unleavened bread as a Passover sacrifice for the sins of the world. Was there ever a sacrifice for the sins of a world or any sacrifice for another individual than yourself in the Torah? Somehow he fulfills first fruits. This is amazing. The term only son in, uh, applies to Israel. It doesn't necessarily mean begotten. It just means unique in application of Israel. Talking in the Tanakh, the son of man prophecy uh, in scripture is talking about a person that was born of a man not a son of god who's no earthly father that would break the very meaning of son of man you have to be the child of a man to be son of man um the, this is prob problematic it doesn't fulfill uh prophecy uh now while admitting he doesn't fulfill shovel or pentecost they still claim it's an allegory that points to him they say that he foreshadowed in the feast of trumpets rosh hashanah and fulfills yom kippur First, uh, I'm going to ask you guys to explain the Day of Atonement, what it does, how it right. isn't a sacrifice for others, uh, and how it doesn't save people, you know, the world, but it's meant to inscribe you for a good year, which, you know, we ask for at Rosh Hashanah and then, you know, Feast or Tabernacles, somehow Jesus fulfills this mistaken identity of crisis of the misused pageant passage in Isaiah that a child you know, she is is with child. They say it will be with child. And then they like to say, you know, the translation is God with us. Uh, but Alma doesn't mean virgin in Isaiah. We know it means young woman. Uh, so, uh, you know, this whole convoluted, like now he's the Sukkot uh, because God was manifest in the flesh. So I want to, you know, in my question of kind of summation of their Jesus and the festivals, what this is not a, they don't do the research. This is not a hermeneutical understanding of text. They're not looking at text within context and within a plain Peshat meaning where there's two or three witnesses in Torah for anything that's going to lead to us having a belief system. Um, so how they even find a way to put him in Hanukkah, which is in the Talmudic, uh, you know, holiday that comes from the Apocrypha, you know, and, you know, and then they point out he kept Shabbat. The main problem with all of these Jewish festivals is they are not Christian and they are within Judaism and they're using these Jewish traditions that they don't fully observe in their proper context 
to point to a religion that doesn't follow those, but now we should follow a new religion, uh, despite pointing to this whole grand foundation that they completely get wrong. So how do they get the festivals wrong? I did a small summary. Um, it, Richard, you want to go first on this one? Yeah, sure. Um, it's, a, it's a big question. It so is. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll start. Let's just start real quickly because I, I, I got about maybe another uh, close to 50 minutes before I have to leave. But um, okay. to kind of summarize everything here, um, well, let's start with Passover real quickly. Um, and it's interesting that uh, they say they eat the Passover land and of course takes away the sins of the world. But reality, when we look at the Tanakh, um, the Passover is not meant to really take away anybody's sin. Number one, it's not a it's not a chata offering. Number one, so um, just right off the bat, you know, if anything, it would have been it would have been a bull, it would have been a young kid bull, you know, it would have been something like that, but not not a lamb for Passover. Now, what's interesting, going back to what Dave and I were talking about just a minute ago, is that what they do is they take things out of context completely. So it's interesting. Why is it that in Egypt, the lands were offered? You know, what was the whole point of that? Well, not to get again into, into the whole in-depth study of this, but, you know, the Maharad writes and many of the other rabbis write about this. And the whole intention of this was that, you know, the Egyptian culture was immersed in paganism and Sacrificing the, this lamb was like the final deity. This was actually a proof that we're getting rid of idolatry. Yeah. You just find it so interesting that Christianity takes this to actually go into idolatry when the very purpose of it was to come out of idolatry. But going back to this, this actually takes us back to Abraham when he takes uh, Isaac to the mountain, right? And he's going to offer it. Again, the same concept in here. You know, if you continue reading, it doesn't say that Isaac was sacrificed, number one, you know. So, uh, again, this is where they, they rip completely things out of content. They get into an esoteric concept, even though he wasn't sacrificed. What's the point of that? Well, again, if you go back to the studies of the ancient world, sacrificing a young child was very, very common in the ancient world. You know, Abraham grew up in that world. He would have understood this. Why the Hakolish Baruch would to send him out to the mountain to sacrifice his son? quote unquote, it was the same purpose why it was set to the children of Israel to sacrifice the lamb, to show them what not to do. <laughs> like the whole concept of Abraham was a lesson to teach him that human sacrifice is not acceptable. That's the whole point. And it's interesting that they take that very same passage to actually advocate human sacrifice, mm. when the whole intent of that passage was to take away that. So, you know, that's why it says God himself will provide the land, you know, alluding to the Passover land that will take place with the nation. The same purpose, you know, it's to get rid of idolatry. And what was that? You know, you go back to the reading in, in Genesis, it literally says why Isaac was taken to the mountain. He was testing the faith of Abraham. You know, that's really the meat of the teaching is that you're willing to let go of everything that you find valued in this world for the sake of a Polish battlefield. That's the, that's the whole message in there. Mm -hmm. not sacrificing your son, not taking away sin. By the way, it doesn't even say anything about Isaac taking away sin for the world. I mean, it's just completely ridiculous. There's not even a hint of that in the text. Any more than there's a hint of that in the Passover lamb. By the way, the Passover lamb only affected firstborns. So that mm -hmm. will completely disvalidate uh, Jesus' work. Because if you're not a firstborn, and the, if you were in Egypt that day and you were not a firstborn, it didn't matter whether you have uh, 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 blood on the on the doorpost. It, it didn't affect you. 
was only for firstborn. So what are we saying? I mean, if we're going to take this literally, that means that Jesus' atonement only affects the firstborn. If you're not a firstborn child, then you're just going to perish in hell. I'm just saying. Thank it, you. It, I mean, theologically, this absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. Right. So, you know, again, it goes back to what David and I were talking about. It, it's just they just take parts of Tanakh and insert esoteric concept in order to produce uh, this this Yeshu that they believe in. And and it's uh, it's just mamash appalling, in my opinion. You know, it's it's, you know, like, why would you want to do such a thing? And by the way, if you have to resort to that kind of, of, of shuffle game in order to produce this, why would you want to be a part of that? Now, you know, granted, we were all there once upon a time and we were following what we believe was right because we were taught. But the issue is not about the ones who are there. What the issue that I'm having is the people who are actually the truth is coming to them and they insist and continue teaching this, you know, because it's one thing if you're teaching something yeah. out of ignorance and you can blame people for that. Like I said, we were all there. Um, it's what are you doing now that this truth is coming out? You know, what are you doing with this information? So um going back to the festivals okay passover is completely ripped out of context we can see that this is the opposite of really what the intent is well i don't think i need to go into the rest of them <laughs> you know it's like you know the very first one we already started off in the run foot i won't even go into the rest of them um and again it's just it just proves right there the disvalidation of christianity altogether and the concept of again what they believe mashiach is so I always like to make this different. This is different between the Jewish Messiah and the Christian Messiah. You know, every nation had a Mashiach, by the way. Every nation had a savior of some form. You know, this is what you get, you know, Hercules and all these other, you know, Greek uh, mythology. You get all these heroes. They were, in one way or the other, in our language today, they were Mashiach. They were saviors. You know, they were they were ordained ones. So um, it's, it's a matter of, again, going back to Tanakh and showing what Tanakh says about what the function of Mashiach is, simply put, and the story. Um, and it's interesting, most of the Messianic movement, in, including Christians and Hebrew roots, one thing they all have in common is that they say we are, so, we are only sola scriptura, which literally means we only adhere to what the, what the written word of God says, you know, and when you look into their, their, their dogma and their theology, where if you adhere to sola scriptura, what are you coming with all this, uh, with all this machine, you know, with all this minutia, you know, that's just like, that's nothing remotely resembling this in Tanakh. So, um, you know, I believe personally, I think this is completely an abomination in the eyes of Catholic Bible. We're taking the concept of a dead man and putting him in the festival. By the way, real quickly, this is the problem. This is why I believe also Messianic Judaism, Hebrew roots, Christianity, all in general, they're not learning. They're not learning Tanakh because what they're doing is, all they're doing is they're trained to look for Jesus in yes. the Tanakh. Yes, so 100%. You, know, like, you know, like if you take the, the the passage of Abraham taking Isaac to the mountain, there's such a beautiful teaching there. Well, yeah. you, that completely is dismissed. You're not going to learn. You and this is the problem. They're not learning tonight, unfortunately. Correct. You're going in there and inserting, just looking. You know, it's kind of like a, a a book. A book has been colored for you, so you're going back just looking for the colors. You know, and and. You're not really gleaning that the Passover in Egypt. Okay, this what this had to do with removing idolatry. On the contrary, you know. So this is the problem. They're they're the way they're trained to do these things. Unfortunately, is doing a disservice to the whole movement. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. You all set, Richard? Is that okay? Um, I I also have to leave no later than one. So, um, 
I got about 40 minutes, uh, maybe less than that, about 30. Uh, so just riffing on something that Richard shared a minute ago, uh, it was it, it jumped in my mind as he was talking. So Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in his introduction to the Makhtur for the, for the holiday, um, talks very eloquently about, speaking, of course, of Yom Kippur at this point, uh, about the you know the controversy of the two goats, uh, one which has the sins placed upon it, one which is sent away. Um, of course, we discussed this in the last interview. I'll, I'll reiterate it here for those who didn't see that or won't see that. Uh, there's a lot of conflation in the Christian world uh, between Passover and Yom Kippur, which is largely not taught taught or understood at all in the Christian church, and it's not really understood in the Messianic world. I think what Richard said is so accurate that. I mean, let's face it. Well, let me finish my point about Rabbi Sachs before I go off. So Rabbi Sachs talks about uh, in his introduction that the entire Yom Kippur ritual, while it to an outsider who doesn't really think or understand, it looks brutal. It looks like, you know, how, what is what is going on here? Uh, and really, in his view, it was an actual protest against the age old long religious tradition of sacrificing people to appease the gods that that's that's every religious tradition that existed into human antiquity has human sacrifice and so when you look at the jewish tradition of how we understand uh the drawing back to hashem it's 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 explicitly not human sacrifice it's 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 the understanding of the reclamation and the rectification of the human condition before God that there's this there's this symbolic as even as um, Rambam says himself uh, in Guide to the Perplex he says it is it is explicitly symbolic it is not literal and so the just you know as as Richard was saying um, the the whole notion gets polluted in the Christian mindset, because everything is focused upon what Jesus did for me by dying. Right. And so that it colors the lens. Like, like I think Richard just very well said, you're not really learning Torah. If that's your foundation of understanding that has to get jettisoned out of your mind. If you're going to truly understand Jewish philosophy and spirituality, uh, you just can't do it. And, and and as you also mentioned, like, I don't have to uh, go into it now because you already covered it. But like Passover, this whole idea that, you know, like my, my wife works in a, a supermarket. She's a manager. And last year, um, someone came up to her because they knew she was Jewish and said and they presented her with red ribbons and a card saying that this the red ribbons, you know, we wanted to. In other words, she was trying to acknowledge Passover and rem and throwing in a little missionary dig saying you know the ribbon represents the blood that was put on the doors which represents Jesus right well even if <laughs> i apologize for laughing but <laughs> even if Jesus existed and claimed to be what the christians say he was even he would not have associated his work on earth with what's going on in Passover, because it has nothing to do with saving souls. Right. There's no salvation that happens in Passover. None whatsoever. Nothing. Is it, the, the blood was simply, a, it was a sign that you were identified and that you were going to be spared the curse. It was a plague, the death of the firstborn. 
So even if you're a Jewish family, as you just said, in that that evening, what you were spared was the death of your firstborn, your animals and your children. There's no salvation in that. The the, the quote-unquote salvation of the Jewish story is the deliverance from bondage. Right. That's the only, you know, that's the only salvation that exists is that I'm going to take you out right. as a people, right. not as a personal salvation God that you have to make some kind of a Gnostic ascension of belief. And all of a sudden you transist from this life of death and no hope to all of a sudden now you have eternal life in Jesus because you suddenly believe something. <clears throat> you don't, <clears throat> I mean, it's great to believe things. But like in in Judaism, you can say, I believe I did a wrong thing. I believe I did a sin. Okay. Well, in Judaism, you don't say, well, you know, Jesus has me covered because he died for me. No, it's okay. So what's your rectification? You do repentance and you change because it's about our relationship to each other. It's not, it's like when, like Christianity, and I think messianics really struggle with this. Christianity is like a bunch of marbles in a jar. Everybody's got their personal relationship with Jesus. And then they bring it into this community event and they, and they just look for people that they agree with that share their own personal fantasy. And if they, and if they don't find that they're grooving with the people they're with, they go find some other community that shares their fantasy. And that's why you have 30,000 denominations of Christianity, because everybody's trying to find a fantasy Jesus that fits the model in their brain. And it's 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 and it's just it's so disturbing. And and the thing, like I guess the last thing I'll say, because I know we're we're gonna be a little short on time. Yeah. And I'll just reiterate the story I told in my book. I remember one of the, the seminal moments for me when I was a messianic teacher and I was in a messianic synagogue, as I remember the first time I participated in the high holidays with that messianic congregation, it was bizarre and it was profane. And I remember standing at the back of the shul where the library was, because there was no seats during Yom Kippur. And you have all these Messianic Christians dressed in white and, you know, doing the Hasidic thing. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm standing back there, like, this doesn't make logical sense. Like, if I truly believe that Jesus is my Savior, Yom Kippur has no functional meaning for me at all. Yeah. And I think what happens to these messianics, um, and this was a point that was going through my head as Richard was talking. I just wanted to finish with this. I don't I can't speak for each of you. I know I'll speak for myself. My impression of most of the people who find themselves in these messianic congregations are people who at some level either felt betrayed or hurt or disillusioned with their Christian experience. And they gravitate to a messianic expression because they're fascinated to learn this new tradition of worship that they've never experienced before. And it seems so uh, romantic, and it seems so uh, exotic even, that uh, they end up actually getting proud of the fact that they think that they're doing a form of worship that their shallow brethren in the church don't know about, and they can't wait to express it to them like you should come celebrate the holidays with us oh no i'll have you over for christmas no i'm not talking about that we don't celebrate christmas we do rosh hashanah we do yom kippur and then they invite people in that have even less knowledge than they do about the the, the structure and the function of these uh, jewish traditions 
and they get led through them by people who are believers in Jesus. They're not rabbis. Uh, and even if they are rabbis, you know, by ordination doesn't mean they're really rabbis. And, and, they, and they get enraptured with this expression without really thinking through what they're doing. And as Richard said, it is an abomination mm -hmm. to celebrate Yom Kippur as a Jesus worshiper. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's not what Yom Kippur is at all. It, and I, I would really implore, I, I think, I don't, you know, I, I'm a big believer in freedom. People, you know, having the right to do what they want to do. And, and you, we're never going to stop anybody from, from doing these things. But it would be really nice if there was some type of an educational apparatus that people would, at least on their own, because that's how I left it. Is I I was always committed to learning, mm -hmm. and, I, and you know, and I think anybody who really commits themselves. So if anybody's watching this, I guess it's my last statement, and they're and they're trying to wrestle through. Maybe they are in a messianic thing, and they're starting to question things, and they're and they just want to learn. They want to go a little bit outside the box, and and they're listening to Richard and myself and you and. I would just encourage you, don't you don't 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 get mad, don't get upset. Just keep seeking authentic sources of learning yeah. and challenge yourself to ask hard questions. Because one thing I love about Judaism, if you get involved in yeshiva style learning or, or the excitement of Jewish learning is the dialectic, it is the questions. Yeah. It's not the doctrine. It's not they don't we, you know. You're not going to get sat down and said, okay, here's the 10 things you have to believe or you can't. It's what's your question and let's discuss it and let's see what the sages have to say about it. It's it's an open conversation and that doesn't exist yeah. in a world in which your mindset is focused upon certain what, what the church would call cardinal doctrines of faith. And I think that that is really a, a big, a big, big problem that the messianic world has is there's a lot of intentional and unintentional deception of its members. That's why I do this podcast as an educational resource. You know, I love the questioning within Judaism. Questions are encouraged. Um, all right. So I know we're uh, crunched on time. So let me go ahead and uh, I'll do one last question. Uh, I got a little bit of a preamble on it. And then maybe we can set up uh, time to do the rest of it. But um, this last one is Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Um, how do they get it wrong? They claim that the tabernacle teachings about Jesus uh, teach the message of salvation, the blood on the altar. How is this a problem when you factor in human sacrifice? Now, Christians try to alleviate the human sacrifice, saying it's not a human sacrifice, it's God, you know, giving himself up, which is even more convoluted. But there's still, I mean, he's part man, part God by their theology, which probably isn't true and is made up i mean you know as far as our understanding is concerned he's he was a man who died but all of that aside not arguing the points of of that uh, a man can only die for his sins you know a son can't die for his father a father can't die for his sons right the sacrifice system was for unintentional sin how does one deal with intentional sin in the torah how does god forgive sin in the torah to do what's right you'll be forgiven if you make teshuva and ask for forgiveness, you know, repent and ask for forgiveness, you're forgiven. Now, according to Messianic Jews, he he fulfills the the sacrifices on the brazen altar, um, which, I mean, I'm just saying isn't possible because human sacrifice would make, would be an abomination and violate the temple. Um, that it's That's just like, 
And then somehow he he fulfills the the wash basin. He washes away your sins. This is just complete allegory. Uh, somehow he's the lampstand providing light. I mean, loose connections, flim, flimsy associations with no scriptural foundation. Um, how is doctrine in the Torah made? Um, you know, like I stated earlier, it needs to be multiple, consistent, clear attestation of something, right? And then the last part, somehow he fulfills showbread, the incense, the sweet-smelling aroma. And now here's the big one, the myth of the rent veil. Why? If there was a rent veil, is there no mention in the Talmud or Jewish tradition? I mean, the veil is rent and, you know, things are shaking. Maybe because it never happened. Why is that not even in Jewish <laughs> tradition, right? And the center of the tabernacle includes the Ten Commandments. And yet, Christianity doesn't uphold the Torah. Uh, what do they get wrong about putting Jesus in the tabernacle? Do you want me to go and, first? Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Uh, so, first of all, uh, if you study Rashi regarding the brazen altar, uh, the brazen altar is is a um, Rashi in his linguistic, his brilliant linguistic analysis uh, of the Peshat uh, mentions the concept of the brazen forehead, the insolent forehead, that the brazen altar represents the pride being laid down. So something is dedicated to destruction. And in that effort to bring forth that which is dedicated to destruction you are you are dealing with the insolent forehead the the, the thick-headedness the the stiff-neckedness um and it's and in, in the messianic perspective that represents sacrifice and then the golden altar represents the blood of jesus because the, the blood that the, the the high priest sprinkles on the golden altar is considered the atonement blood right mm -hmm. um when in fact uh just really simply put it begs the question, uh, if what Christians and Messianics claim about Jesus fulfilling the temple uh, sacrificial system is true, then how can Judaism exist today? Because there is no temple, and there is no sacrificial system. So this, is a, this seems like a slam-dunk argument to Christians who don't understand the Jewish tradition, because, well... I actually used to serve with a pastor many years ago who had a Jewish doctor, and he had he had the chutzpah to go to his doctor and say, how do you deal with your sin if you're Jewish? Do you sacrifice animals in your backyard? He actually said that to the guy. I mean, this educated guy. I mean, and he thinks he was smart. Like, I'm, I'm going to stand up for Jesus here, right? And it, it's so laughably ridiculous because if you understand Judaism, you understand that since the temple's destruction— what has replaced it is the prayers. So the prayer services uh, are they mimic the, the the traditional schedule of the morning and afternoon sacrifice and yeah. evening. So uh, so that and that's why the prayers happen when they do. And that's also one of the reasons why some of the benedictions are the way they are is, is they mimic the ascent up the mount to come into the presence of Hashem at the temple. And then, and then, you know, the, the conclusion of the ceremony, the, the prayer service is very much structured that way. It's got a, it's got a, a, a cadence to it. Uh, so that's, that's just one thing is that uh, we have to understand that if you go back to the Peshat, you go back to the text of, of Torah, there is no sacrifice in the worship system for intentional sin. It doesn't exist. The, the, most of the worship ceremonies at the temple cleanse the temple 
of the presence of the people worshiping. Yeah. It's it's about so if there's no temple, thus there's no sacrifices. Mm. You know, I mean, and, and there's other ways to discuss this. I mean, Richard may have some more to say on that. But I'm just saying at a very functional level, the whole concept that the sacrificial system was in place until Jesus came is so flawed. It's not true. If if the second temple was ever built again, there would be a resumption, presumably, and there was a lot of debate about this in the Jewish world. I mean, this is not, I don't want to speak for the whole Jewish world here, but presumably we're going to have a renewal of the worship system, and it has nothing to do with the atonement of sin. It has to do with the rectification of people's cleanliness. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the, the, the concepts of atonement are misunderstood. The Christian understanding of atonement is not right. The concepts of holiness is not understood by Christians or messianics. Yeah. Uh, everything gets polluted by this Jesus perspective. Uh, and it and it's just really disturbing because, of course, we have the book of Hebrews, right, which nobody knows who wrote it. Uh, it obviously wasn't Paul, uh, but Hebrews goes into this long diatribe of Jesus being the fulfillment of the temple and everything else, and it it's fantasy island. It has nothing to do with anything. It, it, so if if I if I'm a Jew and I wrap to fill in and I pray with sincerity of heart, preferably with a minion or or, or if I'm alone, um, I'm participating in a communal act of faith reasserting and re-emphasizing my belief not only in god but in my community itself it's a communal act uh you know it has nothing to do with my personal salvation so again it's it's one of these things that you know like christianity i'll just go back to my original point and then i'll shut up on this that all these debates that messianics make about well jesus is this and jesus does this and he fulfills this and he fulfills that before all those conversations have uh, opportunity to have happen, we have to deal with the fact that you are coming from a place of Christian understanding on personal salvation, which is a pagan originated concept. It is just the same as Richard alluded to earlier. It's just the same as the Mithra cult. It's just the same as the Isis cult. It's the same as the Krishna cult. It's the same as any of these dying and rising savior gods, of which there were many in the ancient world, all share this in common, that it's a, it's a human sacrifice so that I can be accepted by the gods. That is not part of Judaism. No. At all. Well, in the temple sacrifices were about the kedusha, the holiness of the temple to make it holy so god's presence could come to the temple not necessarily the sins of the nation uh richard do you want to go ahead and uh give your take on how they get that wrong yeah i mean uh david did a fantastic job in really articulating that in a very 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 uh thorough way um in reality when you look at this even when you look at this and again i, I like to always stick to the basics I think basics wins everything. Um, Jesus is crucified. He dies. Some say 33, you know, year 30, 33, whatever you subscribe to, you're still looking at an average of at least 36 to 40 years before the second temple was destroyed. Now, I believe it answers the question, in my opinion. If 
if he is the temple, as you know, Christians describe, and everything was about him in the temple, then why was there still a temple service for almost a whole generation after his right. death? Like again, this is kindergarten. Again, I I I like right. I love to stick to basics because I believe basic wins the it wins the war. You know, yeah, it's no, just I think you're a right. very basic at a very basic level, we have a contradiction, not a variance, a contradiction, because we have temple service. And by the way, according to the book of Acts, we have Paul, we have all his disciples partaking in temple service. Like, like what are these people are doing there? You know, like in the concept of, of him being the, the, the ultimate sacrifice and the temple himself, in the in the Kohen Hagadol, then what are they doing there? Again, it, right. it's one of those things. But there is a reason also, going back to Yom Kippur, there is a reason why we read the book of Jonah during Yom Kippur. And one of the reasons why we read the book of Jonah during Yom Kippur is because, again, it shows us how the nation truly receives forgiveness. You know, the city of Jonah, we're not talking about one individual. We're talking a whole entire city. It's interesting that, you know, in there in the book of Jonah, it literally tells us. I mean, there's many other passages, of course, in Tanakh, but specifically in here, we see that an, an entire nation received forgiveness, yet there's no hint of Mashiach. There's no hint of one person having to die for the sake of the whole nation. I mean, it's interesting, Young Kippur, we read this, and if again, if the idea of one individual taking away the sins of an entire world, I think that the Book of Jonah would have been the perfect example of that because we have a mass group of people. We have an entire nation there. We have a, a whole city. Yet, what is the prescription that it tells us in there? That if they were to shuva, you know, shuva is the answer for everything in Tanakh. You know, and it is to repent. It is to re, you know, essentially stop what you're doing, return back to the God of Israel, and He opened what open arms receives you. This is a nightmare for the church. That's the problem. It's too simple for the church. We can't just God. There's no way God can do that. There's no way God can just receive us just because we shuva. So the church has to appropriate and obviously make make this man, you know, in order to fit their their theology, all their theological support on on how to receive atonement. But again, it goes back to like David has uh, expressed in here, uh, and, and all of us, I believe, it's you have to be able to fill all the holes in the doctrine. And unfortunately, there's too many of them. Yeah. You know, it, it's you know, the more you cover, the more uncovering we see. <laughs> And uh, that's that's part of the problem. So, you know, young Kippur, again, we see clearly that this is about a nation coming to repentance. We see this. I mean, I, I mean, I don't have enough time to cover everything in Tanakh that covers about how people were forgiven in Tanakh. And it was simply Shuba. Uh, and, and again, we still see and the proof of that is the actual Christian Bible in itself. Um, yeah. When we see, and again, going back to the discrepancies, well, actually not discrepancies, this is literally contradictions in this case, you know, where um, we see the parable of Jesus, for instance, it's the parable of the, uh, of the, uh, the son, the wayward son, 
And and it, it's amazing, you know, just reading this now, it brings so much light because in here we see something very interesting. The parable of here, the, of the son who goes astray, the father is, of course, wanting him to come back. He has another son, right? I'm kind of just real quickly here doing a, a quick synopsis on it. Um, and what happens is that uh, the son that remained gets angry because the father received the son that went astray. He received them. You know, it's like the whole parable actually encompasses Judaism. It's the father opened the arms to the son that went astray. <laughs> All he had to do was just return back. And that's, you know, and this is what I'm saying. This is a complete cut. This, this parable right here is a nightmare for the church mm -hmm. because it literally contradicts the whole concept of vicarious atonement, to be honest with you. And we see it right there in the parable. So the parable in itself, the, the temple standing for at least, again, at a minimum, at, you know, 35 to 40 years, you know, uh, after the death of, of, of Jesus. I mean, we would have find that if, if this was all true again, why did the temple didn't get destroyed the same day? Forget about the veil being rent. I, I want to see the whole temple destroyed. Even I mean, further than that, to incriminate themselves by putting it in their own scriptures that they offered sacrifices. Right. Yeah. Right in he Acts 21, as you alluded to. After yeah. his death, they participated in temple sacrifice. Right. Absolutely. And yeah. according according to some traditions, James might have been some form of contra Kohen Gadol or some kind of leader of their movement or right. something. Like they participated back, at a high level, of, allegedly. But this goes back to what we started with this interview. It's yes, it does. Very, it's very difficult because you have these contradictions in the Christian Bible. And right. you have to fish through them and really subscribe to what you believe with no technical, historical support or theological support for any of it. So, I mean, I'm in the subscription. Of course, I'm going to subscribe to Judaism because that's that's the, the standing religion that's that's remained. Yeah. So, yes, we believe that, you know, the temple service is important. Of course, we believe that the prayers are important. We believe that uh, the way we get forgiven is we come to the Father and he, you know, we shuva from the, from the from a pure heart. You know, none of this is contrary to Tanakh, essentially. Mm -hmm. But the problem with the Christian Bible is that you don't know what to subscribe. That's the problem you have. Uh, instances where it appears that Jesus is a very Torah observant and he is submitted to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, well, to the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, the Pharisees. And, you know, he's, he's, he's a halak Jew. He's Shomer Shabbat, the whole nine yards. But then you have other passages that he completely does a whopping 180 and walks contrary to the Pharisees, literally causing sons of devils in the public. Um, you know, he claims that, you know, he is the only way to the Father. I mean, these are things that you're gonna find in 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 the in the in the passages and the narrative of the passages of the gospel. So um that's the unfortunate part. You know, you got passages where we see the virgin birth, you know, like in Matthew and Luke, but yet Mark for some doesn't reason have it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not only doesn't have the virgin birth, doesn't have the resurrection either. No. And, that, and that, you know what's always crazy is Mark is supposedly the first gospel, right? Mm. And it right. and it doesn't have the two things that are so core to their whole belief system. Like what's Absolutely. up with that? Like, didn't yeah, they share notes before publishing this stuff? You would think. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, that's the theory that they that they used each other, but may not be the case or to some degree. Right. So, and this is the problem really with Christianity today, why it's so divided, why it, it really is not standing. It's falling apart and will it continue is. to fall apart. Uh, it's because, again, there's no core to anything. You know, no. like you cannot even look to the very own book, at least as 
as Jews, we can look to the Tanakh and we have answers, you know, to the four elements yeah. of our doctrine. Christians. Jesus has been reduced to Super Bowl commercials where they say Jesus gets you. Absolutely. That's where Christianity Absolutely. is going. It's just an Absolutely. emotional appeal. When when you don't even have any, you know, it's one thing, you know, as Jews, we have the Tanakh. You know, every Jew looks at the Tanakh as, you know, that is the, 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 the inspired word of Hashem. We also have our oral traditions to help us understand these things. But when you are subscribing to a faith that even your own book does not give you a solid answer, that is very, very problematic and actually extremely dangerous, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have to suspend logic to believe in the New Testament. It only works on faith-based and cognitive dissonance. Uh, you can't have sound reasoning if you believe in the New Testament and sola scriptura because the contradictions in the New Testament. Um, you know, Nineveh didn't need a savior. They simply did Teshuvah to repent. There was no sacrifice. No. Uh, there's no vicarious atonement. Now, no. something I'm dealing with in my history hey, class hey, right Jeremiah, now, can I interrupt you for one second? Oh, um, that, I, I apologize, but I really have to fly. I have to go. I have a okay. half hour ride. I have an appointment. Okay. But this has been wonderful. I just want to thank you guys, both of you, for the opportunity. Richard, it's wonderful okay. to meet you and hear your likewise, perspective. Likewise. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but I'll have to duck out. So thank you. Okay. For this hopefully we can uh, do this again. Um, I had like one little last point I wanted to make there, and then let you guys uh, give a closing statement. Uh, if you got to go, you got to go. I have um, to go, unfortunately. I okay. Can't. All right. Well, uh, anything uh, last words for you? Dip out. Uh, just uh, really appreciate this, and, and and you know, my hope is that this will help some people because you know we've all dealt with people like ourselves who have struggled with some of this stuff. Uh, you know, we're not, I don't think any of us here are speaking to the church at large. We're speaking to the people that we've cared about, yeah. that we've uh, in some cases ministered to or tried to, and then we've discovered, I guess you could say the error. Mm -hmm. And we're not trying to attack anyone. We're simply trying to let you know that, hey, there is a path here. And if you're having doubts and if you're starting to look and things aren't adding up, follow your instincts on that because you're right. It's not adding up and, and there is a better path for you. So uh, whatever that path is, it's certainly not messianic uh, Judaism. So anyways, yeah. So we can do another, we can do another one. I know there's several topics you didn't cover. But, yeah, there was um, plenty to still cover. But um, yeah, I just I can't afford to be late. So no, I, no, I understand that, you know, we all have day okay. jobs. So well, thank, thank you guys. Yeah, thank you. Looking so, forward to reading your book. Oh, thanks. Yeah, he can hook you up with it. I appreciate it. Yeah. 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 Uh, so what I was saying is that the Western world was won by Christianity. The Roman Empire, you know, took over the world. And then after the Roman Empire, Catholicism influenced through the Dark Ages. And then yeah. we have the Enlightenment, the, uh, the age of, you know, reason that's come. You know, the world order, the Western world order has been founded on Christianity and you know, it's been falling apart as science and reason become more of the foundation. And it's because I'm doing a history class right now. It's something I'm really kind of diving into. Um, it's interesting how these ideas of this religion that is a faulty foundation has been used to manipulate the whole entire Western world and how that is falling apart. But there's a struggle, you know, as we move towards science and reason and logic the religious zealots want to rise up and we're seeing that in our our current political election cycle i mean oh, it's a constant struggle and we are still in the middle of science and reason 
and this religious zeal. And um, so even this stuff still has a practical application. You know, my concern is kind of, as we talked about, to you know, encourage towards enlightenment of seeking things grounded in facts, based in history, plain understanding of things. Um, I know you got to get going here, so I'm not going to belaguer the point. Uh, you know, any last response, any last words for yourself as we kind of closing out here? Yeah, um, I, I again, just kind of like what David said, uh, we, we, we really, really, it's been an honor to be here and to be a partaker of this. We want to be able to share this word with everybody. And again, this is not a direct attack uh, specifically against the church or any particular denomination per se. Uh, but I believe that we are in that season, uh, as many of the rabbis say, we are in the era of Mashiach. He's not here yet, but we're in the era of Mashiach, which means that there's an awakening. I believe this is why you and I are here and why so many people are all of a sudden just coming out of the church. Um, people are just by flock are coming out of the churches, they're coming out of Messianic Judaism. Many of them are becoming B'nai Noah, many of them are converting. But the, the, the key element in here is that they're coming out of the churches. Why? Why is this all the subtly taking place? Is because again, I believe as what the rabbis say is that we are in that era, and um, this is the time to be able to uh, to spread really the MS. Um, it's very very important that people need to know the MS, and um, you know, without it, uh, we'd be doing essentially this uh, this favor. You know, we were once there. We understand how that feels like, and I know that for most, I believe a good part of the people in the Messianic movement generally are there. Because they they feel that Messianic Judaism is a more authentic way of mm -hmm. serving, you know, God and the Messiah. Because Jesus was a Jew, as we started this uh, this uh, interview today, so they're really truly seeking. I believe that uh, through this time and this season, we are going to see more people coming out, and and again, of course, we're going to see people who don't, who just love the church at the end of the day. So the proof is going to be right now, and this time in the season when the truth is coming out. We're going to find out really who are the ones who truly love God with all their heart and all their soul and uh, want to cling to him. And I think that this is really exciting times that we live in, we live in right now. Yeah, yeah well, uh, this was uh, really good. I'm glad to have you guys on a really good discussion. Um, yeah, you know, I agree that there are those that probably that, I mean, they do come with an authentic reason of wanting to experience you know, an early form of Jewish Christianity they think existed. Unfortunately, they're falling into an inauthentic practice that's right. cultural appropriation, playing dress up, doesn't understand the sources of the text, isn't teaching authentic Judaism, isn't teaching what Jesus, if he existed, would have done. And right. so it's a misrepresentation and uh, relying on, you know, textual criticism, historical, you know, uh, critical scholarship, um, historical archaeology, trying to uncover the past is one way to bring, you know, the Peshat of history, you know, to use a word, but we're looking at the plain meaning of history. Look at history as it is plainly, and then try to figure out what that means to us, and then contextually kind of contextualize all this stuff. But I really appreciate you guys for coming on, and um, I, I know everybody's going to enjoy, enjoy this uh, discussion. And uh, everyone watching, make sure you like and subscribe, follow, share this with your uh, friends and family, and uh, tune in next time uh, for more great discussions. Excellent. And, uh, thank you. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks Thanks for you. Done.